Father God, thank you uh, just for this opportunity to uh, get together to study your word. Uh, even if it's not in person uh, and it's on Zoom, we can see each other, we can hear each other, uh, we can um, pray together, we can exposit scripture together. Uh, we're grateful for that. But we have others that are under the weather. Uh, I know uh, Ian's uh, struggling a bit. I know Tyler and his mom and his stepdad are struggling right now and, uh, and, and others that we perhaps don't know about. Uh, Lord Christ, I was just praying this morning that, that you would continue to uh, cause us to look up, to look to you in the midst of this uh, pandemic, if that's what we want to call it. Um, uh, we don't know uh, the answers, but we do know the one who has the answers. And uh, that's what we're talking about in this book of Hebrews. Our great high priest is right now at the right hand of God interceding for us. And our great high priest, we certainly need you today to help us with this text as well as to minister to our uh, church uh, who has who have members in need of, of healing and help and care. And Lord, we're just grateful to, to have a community like this and that uh, we can gather together, even on Zoom, and just glorify you. So be with us this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, <clears throat> Scott, could you go ahead and just read the first 14 verses? And for those who are watching, we are in <laughs> Hebrews chapter 9. And uh, we'll be Hebrews 9, we're going to start with verses 1 through 14. Okay, Hebrews 9, starting in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as high priest, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more 
will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Yeah, so obviously all the way up until this part in Hebrews and beyond, uh, the author is contrasting the old way of doing things in the old covenant with the new way in Christ. And um, just like in the last chapter, he talks about the old covenant being superseded by the new covenant. Here he talks about Jesus being a greater high priest, and he's comparing that tabernacle system with, with the reality that came in Christ. Greg, anything you would say to sort of open up this chapter that we could sort of begin to think about some of these things? Um, yeah, I think keeping in mind uh, chapter 8 um, and the, the newness of the new covenant, I mean, not to rehash everything you guys talked about from that, but, you know, coming into chapter 9, again, we have to remember it's not isolated from what's already been talked about. Um, I, I say that all the time or a good bit, and it's more for my own benefit, um, but, you know, there is a, a train of thought that is going on here in chapter nine, verse one is there's no, again, chapter nine in the, in the, in the Greek it's, you've got verse 13 and speaking of chapter eight and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away without missing a beat. He says, now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. And so the whole emphasis coming into chapter nine are, or is the distinction between the old Levitical system um, and its um, temporary nature and uh, passing away nature versus the permanence and the newness and the perfection of what is in the new covenant because of Christ. Um, I mean, it's a superior covenant covenant in every way. You know, sins are truly forgiven. We have new hearts. Um, there's no more sacrifice for for sins. Um, because what we have in Christ is far superior to what was in the old covenant. It brings about better results, better rewards. And we're going to see some of that as we get in this week. But we have to understand he is still working. The author is laboring to have these believers not go back to the old covenant. And there's even language in our text in, in chapter nine that um, is going to, to bring that out yet again. Um, so as we enter into this, uh, more comparing and contrasting old covenant, uh, through Moses, new covenant in Christ, let's keep the, keep that in mind. Um, you know, he is laboring, like I said, to show the superiority of, of the new covenant. And, you know, we, we jump into chapter nine and again, the author of Hebrews, whoever he is, was very familiar with his old Testament. Um, you cannot read this and, and think this is somebody who doesn't know what he's talking about. No, he absolutely knows what he's talking about. Um, just the, the ease with which he discusses um, the old covenant system. You know, he talks about regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. He talks about a tent, the lampstand, the table, the bread of the presence, uh, the holy place, the second curtain, the most holy place, the altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, and then talks about what is in there, the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And he says in verse five, it's, it's kind of a, it's interesting to me. He says, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. He just gave pretty good detail. Um, but, you know, there's a whole lot more he could reference, but I think it's sufficient to say, you know, to jog the memory of his hearers. Okay, we know exactly what he's talking about. We're, you know, again, these were Jewish Christians. Um, they knew what he was talking about. And he just really set the stage 
um, even better to make the comparison between Old Covenant and New Covenant. Papa Fred, uh, why don't you jump in? You know, Greg, I, I, I like what you said because, you know, you got to remember, again, the audience. And these are, uh, we believe, Hebrew Jewish Christians, wherever they may be. And like you say, they would have been familiar with all this. And I think that's why he regularly and systematically, um, it, you know, I hear that this perhaps was a sermon. I, I don't know. But it sort of lends itself to that because it, it sort of builds builds his case and, 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 and in a way that would, hey, I know about that. I, 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 yeah, I can identify with that uh, system because I was a part of that system. And now, now I'm part of a new system, and, and this is really, this is really pretty neat. The way he's uh, developing, I guess, the storyline of of the new greater high priest, the new better covenant, uh, and and you know, I, I I'm still fascinated with Hebrews. The way it it tells the redemptive story, like almost no other book in the Bible, even. Uh, notwithstanding the Gospels, so I mean, I'm I, I'm still, you know, here '76. I'm still fascinated by it. So, um, you know, I'm 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 eager. I'm captivated by the storyline. So, Scott, yeah, a uh, couple quick little things. I one one pastor that I was listening to today he had this great line, which I think he got from somebody else, and he said, uh, "Every element in that tabernacle has." hands that reached out for Jesus and cried, come Lord Jesus. I just thought that was such a good line. Like everything in the tabernacle was like reaching out, it's pointing to Jesus, crying out like, come Lord Jesus. I thought that was great. But in terms of what they had inside there, I love in verse four that they kept the manna in the golden urn. And partly because I did the Exodus 16, at least a portion of that sermon. And I just love the fact that, that they kept this manna because this is what God provided for them for all those years faithfully. And it, it, they, he, God wanted them to keep this manna so they would remember sort of his faithfulness, his constant care for them. And just, I think I've even talked about this before, but it's so good for us to make sure that we have sort of safeguards in place so that help us remember God's past faithfulness in our lives. I mean, it's so easy for us to forget his past faithfulness, but it's such a, a strengthening of our faith. I think when we talk about uh, God's past faithfulness. And I, I know I've mentioned this before, but at book club, we just went around the room one night, just talk about how God's been faithful to you. I remember Tyler Williams talking about like financial things. I can still remember him talking about how God worked all these things out, his trip to Jerusalem, how it all sort of just came together. And he, it was just so encouraging to listen to other people talk about God's faithfulness. So I just, I hope we have sort of safeguards in place that help us remember. I can still remember, and I, I mentioned this in, in my sermon, I think Emily Keeter, when, when they got pregnant with their first son, Caleb, she began to pray for us that we would have a son around the same time as their son. And she didn't tell us she was praying this. And then our son was born two weeks and a day after Caleb. I mean, it's just amazing stuff like that, that just, you just bring it up and you're filled with sort of praise and, and worship of God. So we just, to remember God's faithfulness is important. That's great. Uh, so just just for a second, I don't want to put people to sleep because talking about the tabernacle is as as important as it is. People can sometimes lose interest at a certain point. But um, I appreciate Fred's passion, though. I love that. That Fred says, "I want to study this more." I, I hope that's all of us. But just kind of putting it in context of the whole Bible storyline in Genesis one, two, and three, God's if you want to say it, his tabernacling presence. His presence is right there in the Garden of Eden. He walks with them in the cool of the day. 
So God is present. We don't need a building because the people are sinless and God is holy and we can dwell in his presence without being destroyed. So we don't need a temple. It's great. And the Bible ends. The New Jerusalem shows up. There is no temple in that city uh, because the whole thing is the shape of a holy of holies, a giant cube. The whole new creation is a place of God's dwelling. The whole thing is a temple. It's, it's a cosmic temple. We don't need the building. The whole thing is for God's dwelling with, with us. And so the Bible is bookended by no temple or tabernacle, no temple or tabernacle. And in between, we have to have something like this, at least in the old covenant. And if you think about it, what? We're dealing with um, thousands of years going by where God is not dwelling physically among his people in any kind of regular way, right? So you, you've got uh, the time of Abraham. God might show up in a vision or a dream, but it's not normal that God dwells with his people. And then you get all the way out of the Exodus, where we were, where Scott was referring in Exodus 16 and beyond. For the first time, God shows back up in a more permanent way, which is at first on top of Mount Sinai. And on top of Sinai, there are levels of approach. You, you've got God on the very top, and only Moses gets to go up to the very top and meet God. And then you have uh, some of the priests are brought closer near the base of the mountain, but the people can't come that close. And then the people have an area where if they cross the line or an animal, what happens? They're, they're killed. They die. And so it's showing you approaching holiness as an unholy person is dangerous. And so there are levels of ascent, and only certain people can go so much further and then only Moses can go all the way to the top, and then God protects him, and he dwells in the cleft of the rock in a moment, and then he comes back down. Well, in the middle of all that, God basically says, I want to bring my Mount Sinai presence into your midst, but I know it will kill you all. So he says, here's what we need to do. Set up an area of partition between my immediate presence and the people's presence. And so God basically comes off Sinai and goes into this tent, this tabernacle that he has designed by Moses. And just, you know, I'll, I'll probably drop the book trying to hold this up. It's a huge study Bible, but uh, let me see if you can even see this thing. So when, if you look closely here at this, at this image, um, let me fix this. Uh, okay. So can y'all see this? So kind of get the partition here. The, the, the priest comes in through the, uh, the, the curtain and you have this opening room where you have the, uh, the candle here. Is that the menorah, I believe? And then you get the showbread where the uh, 12 loaves representing the people of God are here. And the priests come in here daily and they burn incense and they, they replace the showbread every week. The, the light likely symbolizing God's presence shining on the people, the 12 loaves. And then only once a year does the high priest take... Uh, he takes incense from the altar of incense and goes behind the altar of incense into the most holy place where the, uh, where the Ark of the Covenant is. This is where God's immediate presence was touching earth. Heaven and earth overlapped, in a sense, right here in this spot. And only once a year he would go in sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat, and then he would leave uh, really probably fearful for his own life that he not disobey anything that he's called to do. And that would represent atonement for the people. And this whole system shows something is still not fixed here because only one person and only once a year can make it into God's presence and come out alive. Anybody else who goes in there any other time is going to die. And so while it's a wonderful blessing that God is dwelling amongst his people, there is still a major separation with this veil between God's people and us. And I think the author of Hebrews is picking up on some of these ideas and showing how Jesus gives us something even better than, than that system. Uh, Greg, let me throw it back to you. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, thinking of the, the tabernacle and the presence of God and kind of the, the progress of what we call redemptive history, you know, and we've used that term a lot. So in case, you know, you're listening and you don't know what we're talking about, we, you know, we, we rightly believe, I think, that, you know, the Bible is God's story of redemption, um, redeeming sinful man back to himself. And so we call that story as it progresses redemptive history. It is progressing in, in space and time, um, you know, from one point to another, to another, to another. The history of God's redemptive plan progresses. And so, um, Mark, I cannot remember or find the verse, but I pointed this, uh, mentioned this one to you before. Uh, somewhere in the Psalms, it talks about we have Sinai in a tent, talking about what Moses and Israel had on the mountain is now contained in um, in the tabernacle and later in the temple, um, you know, and again, remember when, when the glory cloud fell on the tabernacle at its completion, nobody could enter. Even Moses couldn't. The man of God who, you know, it says spoke with God face to face, uh, he couldn't enter. In Solomon's day when the temple was finished, um, the, the priests had to leave. They were unable to minister because of the glory of the Lord manifested in the temple itself. And so, again, it's just it's a further reminder, you know, between the bookends of no temple, no temple, immediate presence of God at the beginning, even more immediate and secure presence of God at the end. This is a reminder of how sinful sin is um, when the glory of God, the full presence of God is manifested. We can't be there. Um, and so that's what makes the fact that God allows one person once a year to enter into where he, you know, the, the overlap of heaven and earth. The fact that anybody can enter is is a sheer act of monumental grace. Um, but like you said, it's and like we're saying here, you know, the whole point of going over these details is is to say as amazing and, and intricate as this Levitical system is, there's something much better. There's something far better. There is a a greater access to God than you know Christian that Christians have that even the holiest of Old Testament saints never experienced. And I think that's, that's somewhat where he's going because in verse 6, and I'm not trying to get ahead of ourselves here, you know, he talks about these preparations having thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. And so he's already, again, uh, making a contrast, the simple fact that the high priest for Israel is a sinner. He has to have something for his own sin. Otherwise, he cannot enter the presence of God. Um, and we have to keep that in mind, especially as we draw near to appreciating Christ's priestly work, because um, he's going to go on to talk about that in a little bit. So I'm just going to mention it. We'll come back to it. But again, high priest needs blood for himself. Otherwise, he can't enter the presence of God. Jesus goes into the presence of God with blood, but not for himself, but only for others. And that's one of the reasons why his work is so much superior. Um, but again, that, that's getting a little bit ahead of it. Um, but again, the high priest goes in once a year, and that's all he can do for just a short space of time. That is all he can do. And I think that he, the author here in verse 8 gets into the, the significance of Christ's priesthood. And he says, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open 
as long as the first section is standing, which is symbolic for the present age. And so what the author is doing here, I think, is helping us understand God's whole purpose in the Levitical system. Um, and you guys, as, as I say this, please interrupt, please fill in, because um, I know I won't be able to capture everything in this. But we see that God has a bigger intention for the Levitical priesthood than its own like perpetuity, its own continuing year after year after year. He never intended it to be a, a, an eternal um, system that goes on forever. Why? As we're going to see, it can't take away sin. But we see God, the Holy Spirit is indicating when we read, like Mark, what you said, um, you know, that we're, we need to see this and say, okay, something's wrong because this it's not ending. Well, that I think is what the author here is saying. The Holy Spirit is indicating that the way into the holy places is not yet open. Well, I thought the high priests were working in the holy places. Well, when we understand that what's on earth is a representation of what's in heaven, then there's a true holy place in holy places that we need access to that the Levitical system cannot give us access to. Um, and so, again, I think he's drawing that contrast between Old Covenant, New Covenant. What do y'all y'all keep going I think this is all about accessibility to, to God. Um, so, so, you know, we can't access God except through the death of Christ. I'm jumping way ahead there. But if you look through some of these verses, I think uh, Mark, you and I might have talked about this. Uh, atonement is really the one of the major themes of this chapter, because if you go through the, the verses, uh, further than where we've gone uh, so far. It, it's all about the holy of, of holies. I mean, that access, which Christ ultimately gives us. And, and, and we're separated from God. Only the high priest could go in there one time of year. I, I think, I think Abner Chow said, we, we need a reboot. We, 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 you know, after that one time a year, the sins were taken care of. Well, we, we reboot and we start the whole process again. After 1,500 years or whatever the time period was, somebody had to say, wait a minute, you know, what? I, I want to know God. I want, I want not just one guy knowing God because even the people were left outside. You had the high priest representing them doing all this and the other priests doing the daily duties. I calculated there was a hundred during the um, Feast of Tabernacles. Karen gave me some stuff. Uh, almost 200 animals in that one week were sacrificed. That includes bulls, goats, and sheep just that, that one week. And that is just one week of 1,500 years. So no telling how many animals. This ritual had to be um, uh, just amazing to the people because no matter what they did, they always had to do more. You talk about a works system, uh, it had to be... Um, uh, and they they didn't they had to start all over again after the Day of Atonement. So yes, just on that note, not only can animals not really deal with sin, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, but even as far as the system goes, no, I don't. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I don't think any animal sacrifice deals with future sin. 
So as soon as you have the Passover lamb is killed, okay, that last year's sin, at least as far as the symbolism goes, is taken care of. Well, then what happens the day after Passover when you sin in your thoughts, when you sin in your words, when you sin in your deeds? Well, then your, your conscience is back into guilt mode, and you got to wait another 365 days or whatever it was until you kill the next Passover. So it never really got rid of anything. Even if it ceremonially cleansed you from the last year, you still got to deal with today's sin and tomorrow's sin and next week's sin. And Jesus does a once-for-all purification of all sin, of all those who trust him. And so not just past and present, but future sin as well. Scott? Yeah, I mean, just to, tie, to pick up with what everybody is saying, the accessibility deal, uh, one pastor, Kent Hughes, talked about the Old Covenants. One of the reasons why the Old Covenant was inadequate was limited access, and he went through very similar to what you all have already mentioned, but he, he just said, uh, the priests entered daily into the outer room to carry on their ministry. If they were fortunate, they got into the outer room once in their priestly lives for a week, the Israelite layperson's access was even less, the front of the courtyard, and that's all. If one was fortunate enough to attain to high priest, one could have access for a few blessed and tense minutes at best on the Day of Atonement, which you mentioned. But then he talks about Jesus. I just thought this was so good. He said, Jesus, here's the, and he says, the adequacy of the new covenant is unlimited access. And he said, Jesus did not just slip into the most holy place amidst the protective cloud of incense to breathlessly perform a ritual sprinkling and then exit until next year. Instead, he came having given his own precious blood once and for all, and there he sat down at the right hand of the Father, never more to leave. Just That's just the juxtaposition of the two, but the, the, the unlimited access that we have, again, it goes back to, I think, what Fred, you talked about, just reading Hebrews and studying it has, has made you want to pray, uh, which I think that should, should be one of the, one of the things we, we draw from this is, again, this incredible access we have, how limited it was, and now we can go whenever and uh, the one guy I was listening to today, he just said, like, how strange that how slow we are to go to him. I mean, we're still so, so slow to go to him. And yet we should be amazed that we can have this unlimited access. Uh, yeah. I just on, on that note, I do think that we we so horribly take for granted our current situation of this access, because if we had lived in the time of Israel where you don't have it in the same way, uh, you would be starved for it. You'd be, you'd be talking about it. You would want more of it. And you would feel frustrated that you couldn't be closer and more, more involved. And so when Jesus dies and the curtain is torn in half, I mean, my goodness, if you've lived for 1,400 years, so there's just been a curtain between you and God, and then suddenly Jesus' death happens, and that curtain with an earthquake, it's torn in half. God tearing it from top to bottom, saying, the way is open, like, come on in. Uh, wow, like to have been without it and then to have it would make you value it probably more than we often do because we just sort of take it as a given. Well, of course you can talk to God. You, I mean, they, they could pray, obviously, but the kind of access by the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, they didn't have that same kind of thing. Most people did not have anything like that. And so that is an astonishing privilege that we should not, not get tired of or not, not really take for granted, I think, in the end. I think in light of that, this is one of the reasons why we should like be very vigorous in preaching the gospel to ourselves and preaching the sufficiency of Christ. Um, because as precious as that is, we are prone to want to go back to a works-based righteousness and a works-based system. You know, and tying into to Hebrews, you know, you look at verse 9, thinking of, of that, um, he says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Um, and then in verse 14, the contrast is how much more will the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so I think what's going on there, and you guys offer your thoughts um, after I share a few things here, um, is the, the, he, the, the Jewish Christians that are the audience of this letter, their, their consciences are troubled in the sense that they, they, they may be asking, is it, could Christ really be enough? You know, having that whole system of all of these regulations, you know, there, there was a security, if you will, in the liturgy, in the rituals, in the repetition of the rituals and another sacrifice and, and all of this. There was a, a comfort and security there um, that they're tempted to go back to because it's so familiar. Um, there's visual representation, you know, on a daily basis and then the yearly aspect of the Day of Atonement. And their conscience is tied in terms of a repetition of earthly works to their hope of the presence of God. And what the author, it seems like, is saying is, look, you can't let your conscience be tied to, to a system that cannot get you the presence of God. That's, you know, verse uh, 9, the, the gifts and sacrifices that are offered cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And so, you know, we talk about in terms of Christian freedom you know, within the church, you know, go with your conscience, don't go against conscience. And in that case, it's right. That, that's true. But if our conscience is tied to legalism and the observance of works-based righteousness and acceptance with God, then our conscience is wrong and our conscience could damn us if we don't turn away from that. And so if we find more security in our works than we do in the sufficiency of Christ, and our conscience is okay with that, then that's a problem. And again, the, the, the author here is, is, again, laboring to say, let your conscience be at rest because of the finality, the, the completeness, the perfection of Christ's sacrifice and his priestly work. You can't get a better acceptance with God than what you have in Jesus. Don't go back to that old way because you, you'll never be able to do enough. You'll never be able to rest. You'll never be able to be satisfied in your soul that you've done enough if that's what you go to. You know, and that, again, the whole thing, cling to Christ as one of the main emphasis of this. Popper, Scott? That's helpful, Greg. Oh, excuse me. Uh, you know, Greg, I was thinking about your, your mentioning ritual. Um, we, we like rituals. Because, you know, coming from a liturgical church, that's what liturgy is all about, uh, as a symbol of something. Uh, and in verse 1, it says, now even the first covenant had regulations. Those were God's regulations. He gave them to Moses. So that was the system that God set up. But it's very easy to, to uh, become uh, even mesmerized, I guess, or... or maybe taking them for granted. And, and that's what, that's what re repeated ritual does, but it, but it does not take away sin. It's ineffective in that respect. Of course, all this was to point towards Christ. It was a looking forward, a prototype of Jesus. Uh, but after 1400, 1500 years, whatever the time period was, it had to become uh, futile to many people. And but but they had a hard time probably leaving that because that's all they knew. Uh, Christ was almost too easy. He did it all. 
And like I think Greg, you said it. We we we're justified by by faith, but we we like works. We we think we can do something more than what we're doing to cleanse this conscience that's uh, uh, struggling. Yeah, and I want to make sure we we make it clear in light of that. You know, the ground of our hope are not our is not our works for God, and that's what the author of Hebrews is laboring to show to show. But the salvation and the sufficiency of that salvation in Christ is the ground for doing works. Um, yes. So it's instead of working for that acceptance, we work from the acceptance that we have through faith in Christ. And that's why the importance of by grace alone is unearned through faith alone, meaning we contribute nothing to it in Christ alone. All that we need is in him. Um, that's why we have to constantly repeat that and remind ourselves of that so that we don't get mixed up. Um, but so yeah, this saying and stressing not to have our conscience tied to our works does not mean that works are unimportant for the Christian. It's just putting works in their proper place. They flow out of our acceptance with God and our access in Christ, not as the means to it. Yeah, that's great. For, can we go on to 15 to 22, or is there anything else you guys would like to say on the first 14 verses? Just, just one, more, one yeah. more thing on the conscience conscience deal let me just read verse 14 again how much more will the blood of christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to god purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living god and just what what greg is saying what some guy said uh that i read or i think said this the, the blood of christ gives us power for moral cleansing and power for new living like it's just like you're saying greg it's like power it cleanses our conscience the blood of Jesus, and it's power to live it's pardon and power power to live the christian life but Kent Hughes just told this story about this guy from Nazi Germany named uh, Albert Speer, who apparently worked with Hitler after World War II. He was tried and he was he admitted he was one of the only ones who I think the only one who admitted his guilt. Uh, and he served 20 years in prison and he, his conscience was bothering him from all he did with Hitler, apparently. And he said uh, he was in an interview with, with somebody from ABC after he'd served his 20-year prison sen sentence, and the interviewer said, you have said the guilt can never be forgiven or shouldn't be. Do you still feel that way? And he says this, I served a sentence of 20 years, and I could say I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment, but I can't do that. I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's lifetime, and I can't get rid of it. And then he, he wrote a book. He said, this new book is part of my atoning of clearing my conscience. And the interviewer pressed the point and said, ask him this. You really don't think you'll be able to clear it, totally clear his conscience? He shook his head and said, I don't think it will be possible. And then Kent Hughes says this, how pitifully sad for forgiveness was available in the blood of Jesus Christ. He literally could have had a new conscience without the slightest sense of lingering, lingering guilt. I just thought that was so powerful that it doesn't matter, like the worst sinner in the world, if they would come to Jesus, their conscience can be cleansed, be forgiven completely. And the second thing I would just say on this is something that Sinclair Ferguson said in a book that I was reading. He said that Satan knows that he cannot steal our salvation. So what he will do is he will try to rob our enjoyment of our salvation. And one of the ways he's going to do that is bring up past guilt, past sins that have been atoned for. He'll try to hold them before us to try to rob us of our enjoyment uh, of our salvation. And there's where we, we upward we look, we, we see him there who made an end of all our sin. And so, yeah. Yeah, that is so, that's a great uh, illustration of that. It, I think that kind of going along with all that you're, you're saying, um, what the sin that should bother all of us is unrepented sin, unrepentant sin. So if, I, if, I'm, if I'm living in sin and not repenting, 
I should be bothered in my conscience. I should be spurred on to repent. But once repentance has happened, Paul says, forgetting what is behind and pressing on toward what is ahead, we, we move on. Like, do not be trapped with past failure. That is a recipe for a toxic situation spiritually. We, we, if, we ha- if we are clinging to a sin, that must bother us. But mm-hmm. if we've repented of a sin, that should never again bother us because uh, it doesn't mean there aren't things you have to do to repair damage to a relationship or what, whatever may have happened. But in terms of guilt before God, once it is repented of, it is gone forever and, and never something to be dwelt on in, in a kind of condemning way again. Papa Fred, could you read verses 15 to 22? Yes, sir. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood, both with, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Yes, and so, um, I, I, just let's just go ahead and turn to the Exodus twenty-four passage real quick, just because it's clearly he's quoting it here, and it's not as well known as as maybe it could be, Exodus 24, and this is after the Ten Commandments have just been given, and some of these laws have been given to Israel, and the covenant is confirmed with the people of Israel, and I'll just read a few verses quickly here, verse uh, 1 of Exodus 24, so this is right there at Mount Sinai, then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the, uh, of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And then they, it says the people ate and drank uh, there in the presence of the Lord in verse 11. So it's interesting. Jesus at the Last Supper is, I think, clearly picking up on the wording here. Uh, this is the blood of the covenant. That's what Moses says, right? As he's sprinkling the blood of these animals, he says, this is the blood of the covenant. And as you know, we all have heard this a lot of times. In, in Matthew 26, Jesus says, 
uh, drink of it, all of you, the, the cup of wine, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So clearly, Jesus is picking up on this Exodus passage where the first covenant is inaugurated with uh, the, the blood of the covenant that is sprinkled on the people, and then Jesus begins the new covenant with the, with the cup at the Last Supper saying, this is the cup of blood, it's my blood, the blood of the new covenant. So uh, any of you guys want to expand a little bit more or talk more about those things? One of the things that um, uh, has um, intrigued me, I guess, about this whole chapter or this these verses is that in, in 15, he says he's the mediator of a new covenant. And like you said, Mark, the, the, uh, the Matthew account, 26, 28, the blood of the covenant and the 24, 8 in Exodus are like bookends. It's the old covenant, the first covenant, as they, as the writer of Hebrews calls it, and then the new covenant. Je Jesus introduces uh, at the Last Supper as as representing his body and his blood, and and um, any any any. The amazing thing about this the nine fifteen, he says, so that they who are called, which is us. Uh, may receive the promise eternal inheritance. That's how we, that's how we're saved. That's how we receive eternal life. Uh, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So we've got, we just already talked about how those endless sacrifices did not take away sin. And now Jesus is offering a new covenant, promising an eternal inheritance uh, that redeems us, uh, forever. And, and what a, what a great, what a great, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we ought to think about these passages, the, the gravity, the impact of, of what, what they're saying. And, and Jesus here, I, I've, I think, I mean, Piper has, I had one interpretation and Piper even said that, that, that Jesus is not only the, the, testator of this covenant, this will, Dei Theke, he is the, he's the mediator, and, and he's also the executor. So he's now graduated, he's at the right hand of God, and he's, ex, he's the executor. When you die, you're not the executor of your will, somebody else is. Jesus is both the testator who wrote the will, he and the Father before the creation of time, Second Timothy someplace says, and, but Second Timothy 1.9 says, and, but in fact, I want to read that, read that verse. I had it out here. It says, um, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us. There's that calling word to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So before, back up before Jesus, before we were even here, this was already decided. And now he's mediating this, uh, and, and this idea of a day, I think, hey, um, the, the, the will takes, somebody has to die for a will to take. You're, you've probably got wills, guys. They are, they're worthless unless you die. Once you die, then they take place. Three o'clock Friday afternoon, Christ executed. Uh, his will 
by his death on the cross. And we're the beneficiary, and that is the eternal inheritance. That's great. Greg? Yeah, um, wow, yeah, that's good stuff, Fred. Um, <laughs> so um, trying to go along with that, probably not to the same level. Um, I mean, yeah, thinking about the simple fact that you don't receive an inheritance until the death of whoever's leaving you the inheritance takes place. Um, yeah, you just encapsulated that really well. Christ being, you know, the testator, being the mediator and the executor. Um, he couldn't execute the will, you know, without the resurrection. So it's not specifically mentioned, but he can't stay dead. But his death also has to be real in the sense that it's not like, you know, today somebody, you lose them for, you know, 20 seconds. And then with the shock, they bring them back or through, you know, resuscitation, they, they bring somebody back. No, he was like dead, dead, you know, dead, buried, his spirit departed from his body, dead. So like there's every right for this will to go into effect because he truly died as a man. Um, but he rose from the dead. And then, you know, I think, again, the resurrection is, is all over this, even if the, the term might not be used, you know, for Christ to ex execute the will and put it into place. He has to be alive to do that, um, which, you know, implies very clearly um, the resurrection. And I think he's going to get into that um, in the next section. And again, something, Mark, you and I talked about, you know, the same word for covenant and will, you know, it's the same actual word in the Greek, uh, diatheke. Um, and there's an, you know, for those of you who might be interested uh, in, you know, in, in um, the Greek language, especially in the Septuagint, when the, the Greek translation was written and in Roman times, it was an understanding that this same word that could be translated covenant means last will and testament. And so that's why you see covenant in one place, will in another. Um, it, it can go either way, depending on how the author's using it. But there's also a relation um, between between the uses there. And Greg, that's, yes. that's also why right? we have the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Absolutely. <clears throat> why, why else would we call it that? You know, a yeah. testament, you think a last will and testament. Um, yeah, that's actually a really good point. One other thing, Greg, uh, piggybacking on what you just got through saying, you had to die. I go to uh, Hebrews 2, 14, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So he had to die, as you mentioned, but that part of his dying was becoming like us uh, and, and housing some flesh and blood so he could die and become uh, our mediator. You know, I think it would be safe to say, too, in thinking of, of this promised eternal inheritance, we, you know, you guys had already talked through chapter 11 and, you know, going through all of those Old Testament saints, their ultimate hope was not the earthly Jerusalem. It was that new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city which is to come, uh, where God dwells, where the angels dwell, where the spirits of the righteous made perfect well. They were always oriented towards a future heavenly city. And again, keeping in mind his, his audience and the audience of, of Hebrews, like he, he's reinforcing this to say, your inheritance is not what you see right now. It is not this earthly temple with these earthly sacrifices. 
you have a bigger inheritance, a lasting inheritance, and it is not the city, it is not the temple, it is not the priesthood that you're looking at right now. That is not the eternal inheritance, which is why I think chapter 11 is there in some ways, is to say, look, everybody else who came before you, they weren't focused on this earthly Jerusalem either. They were focused on something far greater and far uh, more eternal and lasting. Yeah, just uh, on that note, if the author of Hebrews was thinking about a future for ethnic Israel here on this earth, in chapter 11, he says, uh, just real quick, verse 14, for, talking about Old Testament saints, for people who speak this way, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. For if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Uh, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, and that city is clearly the, the, the new Jerusalem. And so, yeah, the, the, the emphasis is, is, is upward, it is heavenward, it is future-oriented on, on that new Jerusalem that is, that is coming. Yeah, just one, one thing on the, just real quick, similar again with what everybody has said in terms of this activation of this will on, on Christ's death. Again, as Arkane Hughes who said, the writer's point is that Christ's death activated his incredibly rich will, a fact alluded to by Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. And then he just says, think of the benefits we enjoy because of Christ's death, forgiveness, a clear conscience, peace purpose and ultimately eternal life in heaven all this is possible is impossible apart from his death and it is all activated by his death which, which it just uh even just the, the the benefits we enjoy in this life and are, are amazing benefits but then eternal life to come it makes me think of first peter it made me think of how peter just when he reflects on this he burst out into praise blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ in first peter 1 3 according to his great mercies causes to be born again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And just, it should cause praise and uh, just thanksgiving to, to burst out of us. When we reflect on something like this, which I think it did when Fred was just going, you just, you start getting stirred. And I even just think of like the Fieros saying goodbye to Manuel and Sarah. It's so hard, so difficult. But then I try to think eternally, I have a relationship with them that will never end because of Christ. Like we are brother and sister in Christ and forever we will, we will talk with the Pharaohs, enjoy the Pharaohs long after this little, you know, mist of life on this earth that, that helps me even with, with, with saying goodbye to friends moving away. I know it's an eternal friendship that, and it's all because of Christ. We're, we're brother and sister in Christ. Yeah. Jonathan Edwards uh, commenting on that famous first Thessalonians four passage about we should not grieve over brothers who've passed away uh, as those who have no hope. And then he said, well, what's the hope? The hope has to be that we will see them again. That's, that's the only way to make sense out of that passage. And then he says, well, that means any relationship that is truly spiritual, and he does not mean that as Oprah spiritual. He means that, he means that as in like Holy Spirit spiritual. He says any relationship that is truly spiritual is also eternal and will last forever. I just, that is just an incredible thought. Like people you haven't seen for 15 years, in Fred's case, a couple 115 years, uh, th those people who, who knew the Lord, those relationships never come to an end. They, they may in this life uh, have times where we don't see people or, or someone passes away and goes to the, be with the Lord, but those relationships will be reunited and they will last uh, forever. It's so much richer and sweeter, I think, too. It just, yeah, I mean, that you could, yeah, well said. 
Anything on the, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness at the end of 22. Any quick thoughts on that well-known verse? Well, we can be both horrified and joyful because of that. Um, because, again, uh, how we, we can work from how bad is sin, well, what does it take for sin to be forgiven? For to be forgiven, the shedding of blood. And, you know, you think about, okay, if for Israel, it was at best temporary, as a temporary stay of the wrath of God because of the old covenant system. How many, as Fred was saying, um, how many thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of animals? I mean, it was a bloodbath, if you want to think of it that way, and it didn't accomplish anything ultimately. And so you come to the fact that the eternal son of God, the perfect son of God, who himself is truly and fully God, took on a, a, a human nature and shed his own blood. Um, you know, it's worked from the lesser to the greater. If it's horrific enough to say that thousands upon however many thousands of animals had to be sacrificed for a temporary stay of wrath, how much worse is it that the, the human blood of the divine son of God had to be shed for a permanent stay of wrath? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we use that. And I think rightly to, you know, evangelistically to say, Hey, you need the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, but we need to let the full weight of that fall on our hearts. The, the perfect son of God who alone of every person who ever lived or ever will live never deserved to have one drop of his bloodshed had it poured out in full on the cross so that we could be permanently forgiven and permanently given access to the presence of God. And so, you know, if, if bulls and goats is horrific enough, let's be 100 million times more horrified at the death of the son of God. And yet at the same time, like I said, joyful, he did it willingly. It was God's plan so that we could be forever God's people and dwell safely in his presence. Oh yeah. And, and just okay. on the, keep just on that note to keep going, even just, Think about Zach and Leah's wedding a couple days ago. I, just, I mean, imagine before a wedding, if, if there's a horrible stain that ends up getting on the, on the bride's dress, right, before, beforehand, which would be a disaster. And so they, imagine that they've got all kinds of things that they're trying to use to clean this thing. You know, they, they've got all kinds of different solutions and formula and all different kinds of chemicals, and they're trying everything. And after who knows how many bottles of chemicals and trying to get it out, and nothing can get rid of the stain. Then imagine you have some kind of, some kind of product where one drop, lands on the stain, the stain just disappears. The, the point there is that that product is showing how superior it is to all the other products that were used on it. And, uh, you know, Josephus and people, Josephus is, the, you know, that first century historian. They think, a lot of people think he's exaggerating, but he, he estimated that millions of people were, were in attendance every Passover at, in Jerusalem, and that hundreds of thousands of, of animals were killed every Passover, hundreds of thousands in the first century each year. Now, maybe his numbers are exaggerated, but let's just say it's tens of thousands. After centuries of killing tens of thousands of animals and pouring their blood over the altar, if that could not get rid of the stain of sin, think about the wonder that Jesus in one afternoon got rid of it. I mean, that, that's astonishing of the value of the blood of Christ. So let's continue. Uh, Greg, can you read 23 to 28? Yeah. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, 
which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Okay, before we get to the really, really just astonishing aspects of this this section, Greg, can I just bring, I don't want to get into a, a kind of like a, 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 a secondary issue and make it a big deal, but just... We talked briefly last night about how literally are we supposed to understand this picture of Jesus coming into heaven with, with a bunch of his own blood and pouring it over a physical altar in heaven in a physical temple building. Um, let, let me read a quote from John MacArthur's Bible, and then I want to hear your thoughts as well. So John MacArthur says, yeah. but I think he's correct here, MacArthur says, uh, this does not mean that there are actual buildings in heaven which were copied in the tabernacle, but rather that the heavenly realities were adequately symbolized and represented in the earthly tabernacle model. Can you give a few thoughts about that idea? Yeah. Um, one of the things we have to keep in mind is that the heavenly realities are not physical realities in the way that we are used to physical things. Like, I'm looking at a physical computer right now that I can touch, I can see, I can smell, I can hear. These are physical things. Um, there is a whole spiritual dimension, a world, um, you know, the heavenly realm where God exists that is just as real as, as what we can experience in this physical world, but it's other than this physical world. And so great is, are these heavenly realities that we have to try to understand them in some way in an earthly sense, because we don't have a, a spiritual reference point. I think we'll get that in the new creation, but we don't have it right now. We are limited to the physical. Um, and so when it comes to describing and, and trying to explain these heavenly realities, uh, we have to use physical descriptions and physical objects and all of that. And so when he talks here about like, um, you know, not holy places made with hands, which are copies of the, the um, copies of the true things, what he's talking about is, you know, the earthly representations of the presence of God, you know, you mentioned increasing holiness at Sinai and there's increasing holiness in the tabernacle. We see that expressed like in Revelation, the closer you get to God, the more sacred and hallowed things are. But there's not a, a literal like temple and altar and marked out space in that way because it's so much greater than that. But that's the only way we can understand it is in earthly representations. And again, it's a true representation, but it's not a full and complete representation in the sense that everything that's in heaven, the presence of God and all of that cannot be fully and comprehensively pictured in an earthly temple or an earthly tabernacle. And so, you know, we, we look at the Old Testament and we understand the work of Christ in Old Testament terminology. But the work of Christ is so much greater, so much more superior in every way. But we can't understand it. And you talked about this recently. I'm trying to remember where it was. 
um, about how we, we have no conception of, you know, the death of Christ apart from the sacrificial system and, and all of that. You, you had a good, you know, few statements that you made on that. And so we have to have these earthly representations of heavenly realities, but we always need to be telling ourselves the heavenly reality can't be contained fully in that earthly representation. It's always so much bigger, so much better, so much more glorious. Does that, does that help? Greg, that's great. And just thinking of an example, there's lots of examples, but one would be like Revelation 5, when he hears the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he turns and looks, and he sees a lamb standing as though it has been slain. Mm-hmm. Well, we all know that's metaphorical language. It's not, it, it, Jesus is not literally a lamb standing as though he's been slain. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But clearly, he, that category of a slain lamb helps mm-hmm. us understand the literal act of what Jesus did on the cross. And so Jesus is not going to be a lamb with a slit throat in heaven. That's ridiculous. But the picture is accurate because that is the kind of thing he did on the cross. He gave himself as a lamb going to the slaughter without words in his mouth. Mm-hmm. And so similarly here, while there isn't a literal altar in heaven that Jesus is splashing his blood on, it's a, it's a, it's a symbolic way of describing the cross. On the mm-hmm. cross, it is as though he went into the heavenly temple, his throat was slit and his blood was poured out on the altar. That is as though as what was were happening. If you're using the categories of the sacrificial system, that's the way you could express it to make it make sense to a Jew, especially in the first century, to say that's the kind of thing he did. But but literally what he did was dying on the cross. And that's when the tabernacle, or the, the temple gets torn open and, and all that happens. So it, it is, as MacArthur says, symbolized and represented by the earthly mm-hmm. tabernacle, but not necessarily literal br- brick and mortar building up in heaven. Okay, let's yeah. get to the more, the more uh, maybe um, practically direct stuff here. Uh, verses uh, 23 to 28, anything uh, from Scott and Fred on this? Fred, do you want to start? Well, it's, it's, again, I go back to Greg. Greg, that was, that was excellent. And, and Mark, your follow-up. I, I think that uh, not only does it, did it, does it help, us as Christians who we, we have some understanding of the old covenant and the old system. That's why we're studying Hebrews and that's why we read the old Testament. But it also, it, 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 it um, you know, it, it's almost like the characters in Hebrews 11, they, they're looking forward to something that they haven't seen. Um, they, they have a faith, faith that is seen as not faith. Uh, but they hope for what they have not seen. They wait for it with patience, and we do too. So uh, I, I like that. And 23 sort of uh, sort of the same thing. Therefore, it's necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these right uh, with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice. Again, we're not talking about Christ literally entering the heavenlies with blood, like like Moses hurling it on the people. I, I don't think. It, again, that's metaphorical language. Um, for Christ has entered not only into uh, holy places made with hands, which are copies uh, of the true things, but into heaven itself. And I think that's the key right there. He's in there, entered into heaven. Yeah. Uh, whatever whatever that is, I mean, ooh, thank God will know one day, but now to appear before the presence of God on our behalf. That, you know, Abner Chow said, that's face to face. He is face to face in the presence of God. 
and 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 you know that's only described to Moses, I believe, in in, in Exodus that he knew God face to face, and we know Christ knows him not only face to face, but uh, Trinity inner Trinitarian relationship. But on our behalf, that that's his um, high priest position, uh, and, and that's that's phenomenal. I just get ex- again. I get excited. I mean, I'm just like a kid. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, yeah, I'm just verse 27. I love verse 27, uh, which I just read it. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's just such a weighty verse. It's a verse that's all I kind of sticks in my head. It just reminds me, sort of the the weightiness of life. Uh, even for it should this should motivate me to not waste time th- th- this this type of verse because time is precious and it makes me think of of lost people uh, that uh, they're, they're going to have to stand before God one day and give an account. I, I think of uh, even just past sins. Or I remember Dad preaching one time talking about a, a murder of a child that no no one ever solved the murder, and then I remember Dad just saying, "Well, God knows who did it." And God will, will hold them accountable unless this person repented. God's going to hold them accountable. Like everything done is going to be brought forth. They're going to have to give an account to God. And it's a weighty thing. Uh, reading this missionary bio that I finished, that I mentioned in my sermon, he was trying to reach these unreached peoples. And he went and he ended up having to stay in this place. And he found out that the, one of the guys who lived in this place had been killed and he was buried like right below them. And then Frank couldn't even sleep. He was just thinking like, we didn't get here in time. Like I didn't get here in time with the gospel. Like there's this weightiness to something like this that uh, it should just stir us up to not waste time because everyone's going to stand before God and give an account. Yes, for Christians, we're covered and we're still, there's going to be, the, we'll be tried by fire, the first Corinthians passage, that type of idea. But uh, I just think it's it's a good verse to, to keep regularly in our minds. I remember, I think Adrian Rogers told that story about the guy was an atheist and he was trying to like pester this Christian. The Christian guy kept coming back to this verse, kept repeating this verse to the guy. It's a point on a man wants to die and then the judgment. And Adrian Rogers said this atheist guy left and just the word judgment just kept like ringing in his ears the whole way home. He just kept thinking about judgment. So just something to get started on, on that verse. And just, just to kind of say something there too. We, we live in a world that at least in principle denies that this is true, that there is no judgment. And if you start letting the logic of that flesh itself out, you get a world of chaos because you have to either bring your own sense of judgment now in this life or it goes unpunished. So if your enemy does something horrible to you and your family, you better pick up a weapon and respond or they're never going to get justice. If, you know, if, they, if they get away from justice, like that criminal that escaped murder, you know, the murder charge, if, if there is no way to, to restrain uh, the human race and to find final justice without the truth of this verse. So it sounds serious and severe, and it is serious, but at the same time, what hope is there without the idea that there will be justice in the end? Well, I mean, there's, there's ultimately no hope um, apart from, you know, God bringing all things um, into a reckoning. Um, okay, verses 27 and 28 is it's an interesting kind of contrast here too. You know, talking about it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, which is it was interesting to me. Um, you know, Christ died once. I think we can say bearing the judgment of his people, which is why it says um, to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so judgment is coming, 
but it's for those who are outside of the hope mentioned in verse 28. Um, because the hope of the people of God is that when Jesus returns for us, it's not judgment. It's the, the consummation of our salvation. I mean, and it, you know, again, we've mentioned this before. One of the, one of the, the hallmarks of, of walking in a healthy relationship with the Lord is we long for him to come back. I mean, Paul talks about this in second Thessalonians chapter one, when he's talking about, you know, the son of, you know, Christ is coming back and, you know, to inflict in, in flaming fire, to inflict vengeance on his adversaries and, you know, um, something to, I'm, I'm going to read it real quick. So I don't, I don't mess it up. Um, second Thessalonians chapter one, says when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And then the writer of Hebrews, you know, he's coming back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so we want as believers to see the, the, the glorified Christ in his return. Like, you know, that's why, you know, the new Testament calls it. Titus says the blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, we we want that day to come, um, and you know it's it's interesting because we do live in a tension with that, um, because there's a lot earthly speaking we want to see, like I want to see you know by God's grace I, I want to live a long life I want to you know enjoy that with my wife for as long as possible many you know 30, 40, 50 more years if God grants. Um, you know, I want to see my kids grow up. I want to see them get married. I want to be able to give my daughter away in marriage and celebrate my son getting married one day. I want to be able to see grandkids. I want to, you know, by God's grace, have a long career serving the church, serving the school and whatever other ministry God may give. Um, so those are good desires, but there's a tension there because the return of Christ is even better than the fulfillment of those desires. And it's one of those things I think we have to wrestle in our own hearts is one longing for good things that God will likely give unless Christ comes back. And for me, at least I have to remind myself, you know, if Christ came back before all those things happened, that's not a loss. It's not a loss in any way. It's the, you know, from Philippians, it's the greatest gain to see him, to see him face to face. And so at least for me, there's a, there's a tension that I have to be, I have to be aware of. Um, you know, do I want Christ more than these very good and godly things that that God could give? Does that make sense? That's fantastic. Fred and Scott, anything on that? That's really good, Greg. So good. Oh, yeah. You go ahead, Scott. Yeah, I mean, just so good. I remember uh, my dad, another sermon, I, I remember all these sermons, which is, is a wonderful, I feel like it's, it's a legacy that he's left that uh, I have these sermons. I read passages and I remember stories, but I remember him preaching and he, uh, he said something at the beginning, like, what if Christ came back before I finished? He said, how marvelous that would be. I just never forgot that. Like, it should be just so exciting. Like, who cares about finishing the sermon? Christ is here. Like, that type of thing. I just feel like that's a need for me to really press that more deeply. Like you're saying, Greg, like, I long for all those things you mentioned. Uh, don't have a daughter, but longing for that type of thing, like serving the church and, and seeing your kids grow up. I'm praying for my son, even the godly wife, godly grandchildren, like he'll raise, like all that stuff you, you want to be a part of. 
but I want more, I think, of the Jerry Ettinger, just this super thrilled excitement to depart and be with Christ. I, I really, really, I feel like it's a need in my life that I need more of and really depress that deeper. That Christ, like Mark's sermon, when you preached about like you, you were saying you weren't there yet. I'm not there yet of, of, of Christ being more, more, more like want to be with Christ. I, I feel like we need to all probably make progress there. You know, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, I, I think uh, especially in these these perilous times, people are talking about what ifs and all those types of things. But I, but I think if we had Paul's type of attitude there, you know, uh, my life is is Christ, and, and if, if I die, that's that's better. You know, that's so. Uh, yeah, I, I want all those things too. Of course, I'm I'm heads heads. Many of those things, and <laughs> hopefully there's some more on the plate. But uh, you know, I'm just uh, you know to be with him. I mean, to to be with this Savior that has um, given his very self that we might live eternally and have this eternal inheritance is is incredible. I I, I can't you know. I, I think of, uh, this is not for closing purposes, but I think of the benediction. I was going to mention this before in, in, in the, when we were talking about his, his sacrifice. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, covenant, there's the blood of the covenant again, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Christ Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. Amen. I mean, that's that's to live as Christ and die as gain to me. Mm. Well, uh, that 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 is a, a good place to wrap up. Let me do what I shouldn't do, which is add like another sixty seconds here. So, uh, <laughs> I just can't. I was I, I couldn't leave this story out. So Don Carson got his PhD from Cambridge maybe 40, 50 years, I don't know, 45 years ago. And so when he was at Cambridge, the religion section was very liberal. Like some of the people were almost atheistic who were teaching the Bible. And uh, there was a week of speakers that they were going to do. And this basically liberal, non-Christian, Christian, you know what I mean? Like one of those professors uh, who didn't hardly believe in God. He had come up with a theme for the week. And there was like a speaker on Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and like Saturday night. And the theme was death and so it was death and something else, death and something else. And the last night, the last talk was death and judgment. And he had given it to a, to a liberal atheistic uh, lady who was a psycho psychologist. She was going to speak, a, an atheist psychologist was going to speak on death and judgment. And she had to back out at the last second. So it got assigned to Don Carson. Ooh. So Carson had 20 minutes to speak on death and judgment. He said, you'll never guess what passage I picked. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. <laughs> the passage was written for this moment. And so he wow. said, he goes, he goes, I will not claim that it was my greatest message. He said, it wasn't anything spectacular. But he said, I had 20 minutes to the second. And he said, he wrote out every word ahead of time because he didn't want to make a mistake. All these brilliant theologians who are mostly non-Christian in the room. And he said, the place was packed. Like students were sitting on the floor. They filled the chapel. And he spoke for 20 minutes on the gospel on you're going to die. There's judgment, but Jesus bore the judgment if we'll trust him. And he said, um, uh, goodness, I'm about to get emotional. Stop it. Okay. So, so at the end of the thing, there were, he said, after the talk, they had to have 45 minutes where all these 
theologians would grill you with questions. For 45 minutes, these skeptical liberal theologians would grill you over your conservative theology. And so he said he sat down in this huge room, and uh, <laughs> this British guy said, I believe there are questions arising. That's <laughs> what the guy said. <laughs> and, so, and so he said it was 30 seconds of complete silence. And Carson said he was about to start sweating bullets because he was about to get skewered, you know, just like destroyed by all these liberal theologians. And he said, a mathematics don sitting, a little shorter guy sitting in the back of the room, spoke up first. Carson did not even know who he was. And the guy simply said, if Europe had more of this preaching, it would not be in its moral mess. And he said, then the next 45 minutes, it turned the whole tone of the whole thing changed by his question. He said, for 45 minutes, he got to explain the gospel to all these liberal theologians in detail as they kept asking about death and judgment and Christ's sacrifice. This is a really powerful story. And Carson said, you leave it in God's hands in those moments. He said, if the first dawn to ask a question would have been a liberal with a skeptical question, the next 45 minutes, he said, there would have been blood on the, on the, on the floor from me. He said, because it was all hanging in God's hands. Sometimes in those moments when we speak up, it's going to be we get run over, right? The, the wheels go right over us. He said there are other times God just providentially turns it, and it's 45 minutes of pure gospel coming out amongst a bunch of skeptical people. And he just said be faithful with whatever the Lord's called you to do and uh, speak up when you can and, and pray for the Lord to use it to the best of, of, of what can happen. So we, we will stop right there. Uh, Scott, could you pray for us in closing? <clears throat> Father, thank you for uh, just this opportunity to, to gather on Zoom. This has been just an encouragement uh, to me personally, just to, to talk with these brothers uh, for sure, and just to open up your word and to study Hebrews 9. Uh, wow, it has been fun. I pray that this will be beneficial to those who are able to listen to this uh, later, Lord willing, tonight. I just pray it'll be beneficial to others. And Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the unlimited access will we now have uh, to the throne of grace. Uh, thank you that Christ shed his blood. Uh, help us to see how precious the blood of Christ is. Help us to see how offensive sin is uh, against the holy God. Help us to treasure the gospel more deeply. Uh, help us to uh, live in light of the gospel, how it cleanses our conscience and it also gives us power to live a holy life. Uh, help us to to live in light of eternity, that there is a judgment coming. I pray that that would help us to make the best use of our time uh, to point others to Jesus and uh, help us to eagerly long and wait for the coming of Christ. Help us to be more Christ-centered in that. Uh, help us to be more like Paul, who said to part and be with Christ is far better. I pray that that just would, that, that far better part would, would sink deeper into all of us, uh, that we would just live in light of that and, and just want Christ to return, that we would long for that day, uh, that uh, we'd meditate more on that day, and that that would fill us with joy and delight. Once again, just thank you uh, for this time together. Uh, we just ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.